This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Torin Miller is the Senior Director of Policy for the National Deer Association. I wanted to get him on here because CWD is becoming more and more of an issue across most of the whitetail states in America. It's not a matter of if, but a matter of when. And so a lot of states are planning really scientifically based management protocols and policies around when CWD is detected. And I wanted to really understand the National Deer Association's perspective and position around CWD. I wanted to ask some tough questions of Torrin. And then I wanted to get into a very specific example and detail around the state of Mississippi that has some phenomenal whitetail biologist, Mississippi State University specifically, a very robust CWD management plan developed by Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries and Parks. But they've had some recent commission decisions that are potentially jeopardizing that CWD plan that is put in place. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name, my name is... Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So, Torin, have you guys figured out yet why white-tailed deer specifically 
cause people to just like lose their minds, right? In any facet of white-tailed deer, it doesn't matter what it is. We're going to talk about CWD today, but bow hunting, muzzleloader, tags. They are are factions within factions in white-tailed deer community. Correct or incorrect? No, that's 100% correct. And I, (laughs) you know, I think that, I think the basis on that is that they are the most accessible big game animal, right? Um, In in the the world. world. It could be argued in the world, right? And certainly in the United States, um, pretty much anywhere you would live in the U.S., with with some exceptions, and then there's still deer there, and so these then factions are in some of the other species of deer as well. But, you know, whitetails are everywhere. Um, You don't need a lot of equipment. You don't need a lot of time. You don't need a lot of property. Uh, and so for the, the everyday hunter, deer is a viable option and it's Mm -hmm. been an option, um, in some places, you know, a more abundant option than another in, in the past, but it's been something that people have been hunting, you know, since forever, since there've been people here. Um, and certainly since, uh, folks arrived from Europe, deer were a staple. And so it's, uh, just been a thing where some, you know, our earliest hunting seasons have been deer hunting seasons. Mm -hmm. And it's just been the staple in many ways of, uh, cultures, rural cultures, rural people. And, and now, you know, even more so, uh, encroaching into suburbia and even urban, uh, areas as well. So, you know, I think it's just that connection that people have formed with deer, you know, over generations. And it's become such a part, or deer have become such a part of people's lives in so many ways. Um, you know, seeing them on a regular basis and many people eating them on a regular basis. And uh, yeah, it's, it leads to a lot of really interesting conversations, particularly when it comes to management of deer and white tail deer specifically. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, Torin Miller, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Um, we haven't officially met in person yet. We're going to see each other over the webcam. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to to have you on. Do you want to give a little bit of introduction to who you are and what you do and who you work sure. for? I'm the Senior Director of Policy at the National Deer Association. Um, if you're not familiar with the National Deer Association, Uh, We're actually a group that was formed after a merger from two other nonprofit organizations, uh, those two groups being the National Deer Alliance and the Quality Deer Management Association. So two groups that have existed previously, uh, QDMA having been in existence uh, since the 80s, uh, so has been around much longer than the Alliance. But uh, over the pandemic period, the two groups came together and merged to form the new National Deer Association. And uh, we're a group that represents uh, wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. So we work um, across North America and are involved in Canada. We don't have branches in Canada, but we do have members there. And then we work on sort of uh, science and policy in Canada as well. But um, interested in all deer species uh, that we have in North America and um, do all kinds of programming around education and outreach for hunters, uh, land management, deer biology, and then in my role, uh, policy and advocacy. So uh, mm-hmm. on a personal note, I uh, born, raised, and still live in central Pennsylvania, uh, which has a 
incredibly strong to your hunting culture, um, which is it, very traditional hunting uh, culture, right? The deer pole, deer camp, very um, much so. kind of yeah, scenario. Very much so. So like uh, high school or the local schools, elementary, middle school, high school have off school for like the first two days of deer season. It's, you know, that big of a deal. Mm. Um, have relatively short firearm season that's late in the year. So it's like this really rapid uh, burst of folks heading to the woods over a short amount of time for the firearm season. But yeah, incredibly strong deer hunting culture that I grew up in. So I've always had an interest uh, in deer and hunting and being outside. And that sort of led me down uh, the career path that I was on. Um, my, you know, post high school graduation, I got a bachelor's degree in wildlife and fishery science from Penn State, uh, went on and got my master's in wildlife and fishery science, and then also got a law degree uh, from Penn State as well. So the plan was always to, to be involved in this space in some way. And as sort of I advanced through my schooling, it became clear that I wanted to work on policy and legislative and advocacy issues surrounding conservation, wildlife, hunters, lands, uh, those sorts of things. And so I was fortunate to end up right in the nonprofit space after getting out of school. And I've uh, been doing this ever since. Amazing. Amazing. Would you say that you mentioned that you guys are involved in all deer species, but is it a fair statement that 95% of your work is whitetail? Yeah, I think it's probably fair and it may be slightly less. Um, and we're, and we're trying to even that out, uh, constantly. Um, but previously, the QDMA was a whitetail organization at its core. And right. so that's where a lot of our membership lies. That's where a lot of the interest of our membership lies. And whitetail deer, again, are just more accessible for more people. So it's it's something that more people are involved mm -hmm. in. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, a lot of our work is on whitetail deer, uh, but we do engage uh, on issues with mule deer, coos deer, blacktail deer, um, you know, as they pop up. And then also internationally, right? You guys, I know that Kip and and uh, the prior executive directors have had a large influence in QDMA principles down in Australia for yep. fallow deer specifically. Yep, that's right. Um, a lot of the principles of QDMA have been used over there, and um, that that's absolutely something that we engage in. And then even, and I guess this will tie into our, where the conversation is going, but our chronic wasting disease work. You know, it's really a global issue uh, as well. And so a lot of that research um, and, and work that's going on there is, is you know, across seas and across borders mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Torrent, is it, I'd love to hear your, your, your thoughts on this, but I've often said that CWD is almost the anchor that could sink hunting. Yeah. What do Man, you say to that? So that's what's so scary about it. Um, you know, it's become sort of a, a subject that I have focused on and, you know, not necessarily because it's something that I enjoy. There are much cooler and happier subjects within the deer hunting world to focus on. But this one's so critically important. And, and the concern is, um, and there has not been a link yet, but if, if there is a link eventually determined that eating potentially infected deer or potential deer that are potentially mm -hmm. infected with CWD, if eating those deer could then transfer that disease to humans, that creates a huge, huge risk for the future of hunting as we know it. And that's what's so scary to me. Which is the whole like 
brain encephalopathy, mad cow disease right. sort of echelon we've of, seen it, of viruses, yeah, right? Yeah, we've seen it in this. We've seen it mad cow disease, so it's it's tied into those same family of diseases. So we know that it's theoretically possible. Again, that link hasn't been made yet. Uh, the CDC and state agency is advised against eating um, deer that have been determined to be uh, infected with CWD. But should that happen, uh, it's really concerning what happens to hunting. I think already what we're seeing is as the disease pops up and you have sort of disease management zones established, uh, there are some extra steps that hunters have to take to hunt within a disease management zone. And to some hunters, those extra steps are a barrier to then hunting in that area. And it's just mm-hmm. sort of this spiraling effect mm-hmm. where you have less people hunting, while at the same time we needed to remove more deer from those areas. And it's just this huge, massive problem that just snowballs. And if that becomes the case where, you know, you harvest a deer and it is positive and, uh, or potentially positive, and that can make the jump to humans and then people aren't eating them, then you lose even more incentive to go hunting, right? Because for so many of us, it's food that that is coming to the table. That's our primary incentive. And when you remove that, then you lose even more hunters and, and and hunters have so, you know, wide, a wide range of impacts from, from wildlife management and habitat management, but also the economics behind it that drive, you know, state agency funding. And so many programs that right. that we as hunters rely on, but that we as a nation rely on and, and just expect to have at this mm-hmm. point, you know, with the management of our resources. And that's why I, I refer to it as the anchor, because there's there's a very tight spiral downwards that are very, very connected. All these little things that you just mentioned are all very much interconnected to being a very much an anchor to the loss of hunting and also uh, you didn't mention it but an argument for the anti-hunting side of things to say see you don't need hunting yeah, yeah absolutely um that thought is really scary to me and it's something that i think about a lot um and there's you know there's so much research going on um Particularly when you're thinking of Creutzfeldt-Jakob uh, disease, which is a disease that you know infects humans, you know, as the host, and we haven't figured that out yet. And so there's all these dollars mm-hmm. sort of going to that human-based disease, and we haven't found a cure for it. You know, and CWD is so far down the line of importance, you know, in that hierarchy that that the idea of actually finding a cure or a treatment for CWD you know, is down the line. Um, so it's such a big problem, uh, that's being tackled from a lot of different angles. Um, but should it, it get to a point where, you know, it makes that jump to humans or, uh, we, you know, who knows what else we have, we don't know. Right. Um, but there are a lot of things that could go really wrong. And that is, that's scary to me. It's not unique, though, to white-tailed deer. There's certainly CWD and elk. That's probably been the most prevalent CWD uh, carrier for quite some time, as well as mule deer. Why are we not seeing, like, maybe I can answer it myself, but maybe I'll just pose the question. Why, why all of a sudden the surge in CWD-related research and concern when it's already been in, in other you know, species that have been hunted for quite right. some time. Yeah. So the disease was, you know, first 
identified or discovered in the late 60s in Colorado in a, a captive facility and it's since slowly spread. Um, but what we're really seeing is within the last uh, 15, 10 years, something like that, is, is the spread has just gone up exponentially. And I think that's for a number of reasons. I think part of it's the way that the disease works. But as it started to spread, right, more states and agencies take notice of it, and we're testing more, and we're looking more, and we're making sure we're finding it. And so there are a lot of factors to that. Um, but you're absolutely right. It's been an elk, mule deer, moose, uh, not in North American caribou, but it's been found in reindeer in Northern Europe. So member of the, members of the deer family uh, carry it. Um, you know, and there have been instances out West, as you said, elk particularly, but also mule deer, um, and Wyoming immediately comes to mind as a place that, that it just has widespread infection of, of chronic wasting disease across its mm -hmm. species. Um, and there are some studies out there that suggest that the disease itself is ac actually having population impacts on mule deer and potentially elk. Um, mm. so I think, you know, we're going to see a focus in that area and a lot of that research be transferred over to whitetail deer. But with the focus recently, I, I again, I think it's just the rapid expansion or of spread that we've seen, particularly in the East, um, where the deer hunting culture drives everything. Uh, those deer hunting dollars, mm -hmm. license sales, uh, ammo sales, you know, all the taxes that are, that are put on the, the money raised that goes back into wildlife management programs. I think it's the threat of what happens to all of that if we don't get a grip on this disease in white-tailed deer, particularly in the Midwest and the East. So what does the science say, Torum, to why we're seeing such a rapid increase in CWD prevalence across the West or the Midwest and the East? Is it, well, I won't, I won't subject, I'll just let, leave mm -hmm. the question out there. You know, what's the science? Again, say? I think it's a conglomerate of things. Um, in most places, populations are really heavy or really healthy. So you have higher deer densities, right? So deer are interacting more regularly. They're, they're clustered together, which is really helpful in spreading disease. Um, you have a lot of hunters that are traveling to and from places to hunt. So they may be, uh, for instance, folks from Pennsylvania, maybe going to Ohio, going to Indiana, Illinois to hunt and then coming home and bringing, you know, potentially infected parts or carcasses back. And states have done a really good job of limiting that, although folks are still, uh, you know, breaking the law in many instances and moving to your parts that they shouldn't. Um, we see some uh, positives that are directly linked to the movement of captive deer between, you know, high fence hunting operations or deer breeding facilities or, or other places that have, um, you know, live deer behind a fence in some way, shape, or form. And again, states are tightening down on that and doing a better job at that. And then we're also slowly, slowly, slowly seeing an increase in the amount of funding that states are getting to do uh, surveillance and research on the herd. So as they're, you know, surveilling more and targeting in on places, they're doing more samples. They're encouraging hunters to submit samples or they're picking up roadkill deer. They're going to have more data and with more data, and, and more individuals to test, they're going to start finding more positives as well. The important thing to know mm -hmm. there is that the percentage mm -hmm. is not staying the same, right? So you test 100 deer and you find two positive, that's, you know, prevalence rate of 2%. Say that they're uh, testing 1,000 deer, the 
you know, would be the 20 or whatever that math works out to be, but it's not a consistent 2%, right? You test a thousand and then maybe 10% come back positive. So it's not strictly, you're finding more because you're testing more. You certainly are, but the prevalence rate is also increasing as well, which is important to know. Is it, is it true? Is there a factor in this of CWD being, I guess, noticed more because of this new education around it? It's certainly certainly a, a goal, right, is that uh, agencies, and we've had some federal legislation that allows uh, some money for this that just recently passed, but agencies are educating hunters uh, much, much more, and, and groups like ours are trying to do that too. And so, you know, I think now it's hard for even the average hunter to say that they're not aware of CWD or, or generally what it is or what its impacts could be. Um, but with that comes sort of the opportunity for there to be some issue fatigue, right? You know, as you are talking about CWD and all the potential negatives that come with it, you know, eventually folks get to a point where they just stop listening. And that's a big concern too, because as you start to lose your audience, then a lot of that work that you've made uh, in the education front just sort of starts, starts falling off. Mm -hmm. But so let me ask that. Let, let's follow on there because I could see that happening very, very easily, right? That there is a lot of narrative potentially around CWD that we know it's a prion. We know it's something that cannot be destroyed. We know it lives forever. It's very persistent. So it's here, people. It's not going anywhere. So there, there's some countermeasures to spreading, but once it's there, it's there. Like let's just deal with it and move on kind of scenario. Yeah, that's the argument, right? Is that um, we're not going to stop it, uh, or at least we haven't yet. We don't have any good, um, you know, cure or treatment yet. Um, I think where some of the hope comes in uh, is that, again, you know, really within the last 20 years or so, this has been looked at hard, uh, you know, in the Midwest and the East where there are higher populations of white-tailed deer. But there are instances where um, reducing deer density, so removing deer, whether it be a, a targeted removal or increased tag allocations, has shown uh, in certain areas that they can keep the prevalence rate relatively steady. Uh, whereas, you know, mm. across the border in the next state who is not taking that same approach, that prevalence rate is going up, you know, on an exponential type curve. And so there's, there is some management strategy hope there, and that's where a lot of states are, are working. Um, but I think absolutely states, states tackle that question big time, is how do you keep your hunter base engaged? Because hunters are the most important tool that the state agencies have for managing deer. How do you keep them engaged in the process um, while also managing the disease? And I think there's a lot of intricate questions there. Uh, that they're working to answer on how can we keep uh, hunters in the field, encourage them to harvest more deer, um, bring new people to the sport while also doing our best to manage deer in a way that that is scientifically sound when it comes to disease management. And there's a really fine line that there's a really fine line there of where those two meet. And I think where you can do both and states are doing all they can to find where that line is in their state. Yep. No, I totally agree with you. Uh, one of the things you mentioned earlier was the the high fenced operations. 
And I really want to, I want to distinguish maybe this conversation discussion into two parts as we get into this. I want to talk about high fence operations and then I want to talk about deer mm-hmm. breeding. I think those two things are, 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 are separate and different. Uh, in some cases they're not, but for the majority sure. they are. Um, what is NDA's position when it comes to high fence operations and CWD? So we, uh, our position statements, we have a position statement on canned hunting. So um, hunting behind a fence where the animal has no reasonable chance to escape. And that would look like, you know, a, a relatively small acreage where deer are placed within that pen to, to strictly be. But you don't have a number there, right? You guys, because it's so right. difficult. It's so right. freaking, you know, And subjective. so there are high, high fence hop hunting operations and Texas immediately comes to mind, but they exist elsewhere where um sure you know a fence put around a large piece of acreage and the deer that are there remain there and they stay there you know until they're harvested but the deer are managed like they would be on a a piece of property that does not have a fence around it and there's no real issue there we don't have a real issue there you know as long as the deer are, are moving in natural patterns and there's you know an acreage whatever that arbitrary you know number may be where deer can escape and they have a reasonable chance to evade the hunter uh, that's something that we sort of leave alone. We don't oppose it. We don't, uh, you know, support it. It's just, it's mm-hmm. there. Um, and some high fence operations do a really great job at managing deer and they just want the fence to manage for an older age class or something like that. Correct. Um, Correct. the sticker for us is when deer start to move. Um, so when, so in that, before we talk about the movement, so from a CWD perspective, the way that you see it, and that's the way that I would see it is that I would take it and manage it just like any other operation with a low fence or right. high fence in that it's a density issue. Yeah. It's a, maybe a feeding issue, whatever. Right. Yeah, right? That, you know, as long as your, your densities are natural and in some cases potentially better managed than what you could in, in a non-fenced uh, mm. situation as well. But yeah, you know, there's, as long as the facility, you know, I don't want to say facility because, you know, not a, a high fence. Correct. It's not a facility. Not necessarily facility. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, as long as it's managed as it would be, you know, a, a piece of large private acreage without a fence and deer are not coming in or out, or you're not artificially, you know, increasing the density to have a more target rich environment or something like that. Yeah. That's totally different than what we're talking about. Uh, when we're talking about like a breeding facility or a, a canned hunting operation. So let's talk about the next step, which is the breeding facility, yep. right? This is high density deer bred uh doing breeding to uh create uh either to sell semen off of very large bucks to be then used as ai in other operations other high fence operations um and then also potentially selling of or moving of those deer to other high fenced operations whether you know smaller acreage or normal yeah. acreage and we do have position statements on on both of those sort of canned hunting uh operations and artificial uh breeding we are opposed to both um one one point being because of disease concerns but also the other being just like the ethics of deer uh we view deer as wild animals mm-hmm. and not livestock and so when you then put them in mm-hmm in the arena of, you know, artificial insemination and doing genetic work and growing bucks to just have these insane, you know, racks that are not natural or are found in a natural setting, then yeah, we're opposed to that. So does the science show 
in specifically to CWD. And there's obviously a bunch of high fence breeding operations. I know that uh, there's probably been a little bit of work. Probably most of the work has been done in Michigan because that's probably where the most research happens from a CWD perspective. Has there been science that shows a correlation between these breeding facilities and where CWD is occurring and where it starts increasing in its prevalence, i.e. where the deer went to? There have So there have been instances where like a first positive has been detected at a breeding facility. And then you start to see two different things. Sometimes you see wild positives in that vicinity that pop up afterwards as, as that becomes a sort of a surveillance zone and they start testing around that facility. But then you also mm -hmm. see a web uh, sort of form when you start tracing where deer from the positive facility ended up. So whether you know deer actually removed from the facility to go to another facility and then they're tested there you can start to see positives there and so a really good example there are two recent examples that are um, really good good in terms of enlightening examples one being in texas where there was a positive facility that was then traced to hundreds of other facilities in the state and they've started to run down those other facilities and do some testing and they're finding positive deer at those facilities so that that's a really good example of how did those did those facilities test before and they were still they were uh, negative before? You know, I don't know. I don't Do know, know the specifics that? of the state testing program. A lot of times that's determined by the state. Okay. And it could be state wildlife or ag agency. Um, but I know that they ramped up their testing or surveillance after that. And then another example is um, Wisconsin and Minnesota. There was a connection between facilities there. Um, and they found that indeed two facilities or three facilities that had traded deer all had positive deer. And then one really concerning uh, point about that is one of the pos positive facilities had deer uh, within the fence die and then dumped those remains outside the fence on a piece of public land. And um, some of the wildlife officials from that state uh, tested those remains that were dumped onto public land. And they were infected with CWD uh, prions. So then that piece of public land gets a high fence put around it to keep try to keep other deer mm. around. So that's a that's an example of deer behind a fence directly impacting public hunting ground for other people and potentially infecting you know deer in the wild. And that's mm -hmm. that's been a whole big debacle. The fence has been put up. The state's asking that uh, facility owner to pay for the fence. The facility owner is refusing to pay for the fence that they had to put up around the public land. And so it's like this just giant, terrible mess that I don't think is probably mm -hmm. indicative of how most people operate their facilities. But it's a, a good example of how, like, you know, a bad apple exists. And, and when things go wrong, they can go really wrong. No, 100%. 100%. Um... So let's talk to some specifics. So recently, there has been some activity, uh, specifically in Mississippi. Uh, we're very close to what's happening in Mississippi. Um, it's related to the commission and the commission's decisions as it relates to potentially um, moving deer, transporting deer, high fence uh, enclosures of transport deer, um, getting AG opinions. Can you just set the scene for us of what's happening there, Torn? Yeah, it's actually sort of a, been a process that's been ongoing, and it's been a, a series of steps uh, that have sort of led where we are now. But 
just to start with some background, CWD was first detected in Mississippi in 2018. Um, they're up to just about 200 positive uh, detections, and they've been... How many counties now? Uh, I forget off the top of my head, but it's... Uh, not a ton, a handful, heavy handful, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. The counties that have mm-hmm. positives, uh, a lot of the the positives have sort of stayed and have been clustered within those counties, but then there are uh, surveillance counties on the outside. So um, yeah, roughly 200 total positive detections over about four deer hunting seasons where they've been uh, actively sampling. Um, I do know that this year they're up to over 60 positives from this past hunting season, but they do still have some, some pending samples out there. Uh, the 64 positives from this season is the most that they've ever had in a single, uh, hunting season last year. They had, I think it was, how many did they surveil this year? I don't know the total number, uh, a couple thousand, I think. So I don't know exactly what the prevalence rate looks like yet and they won't know until they have them all back okay okay but uh for for reference last year season whatever the total sampled was uh they had 51 comeback positive and that was the previous you know record high for a single season so likely that they tested more deer this year i don't know that for a fact but they also found um at this point you know, 15 more or something like that than what they did last year. The good news is uh, they have not added any new counties this year. Um, You know, whether or not that's indicative of spread or not, we're not sure, but at least they haven't found anything in the Mm -hmm. new county yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But they did a great job in putting this, a CWD management plan in place. Once they found that first CWD, they really were very good at sort of, almost it wasn't a rapid response or maybe you could call it a rapid response but they really put a very tight net like this is what we're going to do because of i think it's like a billion dollar industry in the state of mississippi from a white yeah. perspective so they did they um they did a, a really thoughtful plan and it was pretty quick in terms of how state government moves um but they borrowed um sort of bits and pieces from surrounding states they borrowed Things from Missouri's uh, plan, Tennessee's plan, and Arkansas's plan, and they came together and put together a you know pretty cons- comprehensive plan on how they are going to manage CWD uh, in Mississippi and what it looks like as new detections are made. And so the nice thing about these plans, and and the majority of states have them now. We have thirty states that have positive detections, but even states that don't have positive detections have plans ready. Uh, should they get a positive detection. But the plans are just to like help agencies be consistent. They let uh, hunters and non-hunters mm-hmm. know sort of what's going on and what to expect. And so it just puts everything sort of out in front of everybody so everyone's on the same page from the start. And that's really important that when you do make that detection or a new detection in a new county or, or you know something along those lines, that you know exactly what the management action is going to be. Um, yeah, so they put together this this plan. Um, Mississippi has about 200 facilities that have um, deer and fences. Of those, a little over 100, I think it is, have white-tailed deer. And of, of those, only five are controlled breeding, so the rest would be more along okay. the lines of the high-fence um, properties that we sort of talked about earlier, where they're not they're not uh, you know breeding deer necessarily but they're managing deer within a fence and so 
there's been a number of things that have happened over the years. And I guess I'll just start uh, sort of from where it started and move to where we are right now. Um, last summer, the commission, the Wildlife Commission with the commissioners are appointed by the, the governor of Mississippi to serve on the Wildlife Commission. And they sort of guide the management actions of um, the Mississippi uh, Department of Fish Fisheries, Wildlife, and Parks. Um, yeah, wildlife, wildlife fisheries, fisheries and parks. And parks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they sort of guide the management decisions of the agency. And so, last summer, the commission decided to make some adjustments to the CWD plan, uh, particularly around the steps that a county has to take to be removed uh, from a CWD uh, management zone. So before it was that a county had to be uh, so many years removed from their from a positive detection, but also meet a certain number of uh, sampling uh, samples over that time period. So there was like a sampling a minimum sampling threshold that had to be met within that county, mm -hmm. and they had to not find any new positives, and then the county could be removed from um, from mm -hmm. the CWD zone and the restrictions that go with it. Uh, the commission decided to remove any county that just hadn't had a positive in three years and eliminate that the, the sampling threshold. And so that's concerning for a primary reason is that without a minimal uh, sampling threshold, right, a county could have a positive. They could decide not to test any deer for the next three years. And by not testing any deer, they're not going to have any more positives. And then they are then removed from the CWD zone. And so by doing that, uh, the commission removed two counties that had previous positive detections and two counties that were included in surveillance zones based on their proximities to those uh, two counties. Did they, who's in charge of, because it makes sense, but then on the other hand, I'm, I'm like, it, it's almost like on both ends of the spectrum, right? One, I don't know, what were the sampling thresholds for these counties put in place in the CWD management plan? Was there a number? A hundred, hundred and fifty yeah, a year. And there were there were there's sort of like a scientific base to how they determine those numbers and they use a uh, system developed by Arkansas. And it had to do with um like deer densities and the number of hunters and like they took in all these factors to come up with the the sampling thresholds. Um so it wasn't just like an arbitrary like test 100 deer or test 200 deer or 300 like there was a, a mm. very specific formula for determining that number um and so the commission basically removed that number and by doing so removed four counties from uh the cwd management and surveillance zones and so but but who's doing the testing it's not the county that's doing the testing it's mdwfp that's doing the testing so the mdwp could still go into those counties and could still test, right? They could. Uh, the problem comes back uh, from resources. And so particularly, you know, as so now that a county's removed, uh, and I don't know the internal processes that they go through, uh, but likely mm -hmm. they, they're mm -hmm. focusing on what they determine to be high-risk areas, right? And so they're going to sure. put more of their resources to areas where they have known positives or where they expect the disease to show up next. And so, you know, if it's a non- um or not a high risk or high priority area uh then they may not be able to send as many resources there and so that they might not you know meet that sampling threshold in that three-year time frame or whatever it may be it may take five years to get so assuming that the threshold still exists 
maybe the county doesn't have a positive for five years, but it takes five years to hit that, uh, you know, minimum threshold. And then the county would come out. And I think it, I want to say too, I think it's really important that there is a way out for counties, right? If there was one isolated positive, right. there definitely needs to be a way out. And, uh, you know, under the, the management plan, there was, and I, I don't know what specifically the thinking was behind the commission, but I suspect that they, they thought that it was too long or arduous for counties to get mm -hmm. there and that, uh, you know, hunters may be complaining about restrictions or things like that. And so th they made it just a flat three-year, no positives. But just for those four counties, right? They didn't do it for... Well, it, it's was applicable it to other counties, but by making that change, it, it immediately removed two... Sets right, precedents. It immediately removed four. And right. then as we move forward, uh, there could be other counties that just meet that three-year, no positive minimum and, and, and come out automatically. So... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um that was that was done last summer and then just this last fall um claiborne county uh which is on the border uh, of mississippi louisiana separated by the mississippi river was put into a uh, cwd surveillance zone based on a positive detection across the river river in tensop parish yep. uh, louisiana and so uh just this last November, the commission decided to remove that Mississippi County from CWD surveillance, um, citing that the Mississippi River is a significant natural barrier to prevent deer from from bringing or or sending CWD from Louisiana into Mississippi. Um, you know, in short, we know that's not true. There are a number of collared. Well, we know deer swim rivers yeah, all the time, right? There are a number of collared deer in Mississippi that have crossed the river pretty routinely. Uh, so we have signs in Mississippi that right. shows that deer cross right. the river. And so that's concerning. Um, it was seemed like a little bit of an arbitrary, uh, move. The commission actually invited some folks from that County in Mississippi to come testify. These were folks that had been, you know, either charged for feeding or baiting in that zone. That's one of the restrictions when you're in a surveillance zone, it, you know, removes the ability to feed or bait deer. The commission invited these folks and you can watch this testimony it's recorded on youtube i believe um mm -hmm. invited them to basically say you know we were charged and we don't think this should be a rule in our county and they removed that county and so that happened just this last fall and then like a week ago we just found out um that that louisiana parish that put this county in the zone just detected like another five or six cwd deer um you know and it's like wow. five miles from from the border and so really concerning there, a move that just does not in any way, shape, or form seem based on sound science, uh, particularly when there are collared deer in Mississippi that are crossing the river routine. And a great white-tailed deer program in Mississippi that's, yep. that has accolades after accolades after accolades for its science work, right. right? Yeah. Yeah. When you think deer research, you're thinking, you know, Mississippi State uh, among, you know, a handful of other schools. But yeah, absolutely. And so you think if there's any resource they would trust, it would be this, you know, a state university uh, within their own state. Um, but just sort of ignored the science on that one and removed that county out of the CWD zone. So that was sort of the next uh, misstep by the, the commission, if you will. And that leads us to where we are now. Um, and this one is a little convoluted, but 
basically the commission had uh, made a motion to ask Mississippi State Attorney General for an opinion. And so in Mississippi, there's a statute that said, um, or I guess even stepping back one more step, wild deer and white-tailed deer in Mississippi are considered wildlife. So they're managed by the wildlife agency, regardless of be- mm-hmm. whether they're behind a fence or not. Um, some states are not mm-hmm. like that. When, in some states, when deer are put behind a fence, they become livestock and they're managed by a state's ag agency. That's not the case in Mississippi. They're wildlife. So they fall under the purview of the wildlife agency. And there's a statue in, uh, or a statute in Mississippi that says uh, deer cannot be bought, sold, transferred, period. Um, there had been a, an ask of the attorney general eight or 10 years ago, whether the, the commission could allow for the buy, transfer, sell of deer behind a fence. The attorney general said no. And then uh, there was another request made earlier, or I guess in 2022, the, or winter, spring of 2022, to re-ask the attorney general basically the same thing. Can the commission uh, allow, or promulgate a rule that allows for the buy, transfer, uh, trade, sell of deer? And there was a comment made at that meeting. Uh, it was a highly attended meeting. A bunch of people were there. There were some big waterfowl issues on the table, so a large audience. Uh, that meeting was not video recorded, but it was audio recorded. Um, and there was a couple comments made that were concerning. One of the comments that that was made was that maybe the attorney general can get it right this time. So somebody, you know, had obviously not liked the the previous attorney general opinion Mm -hmm. and there was a motive to get a ruling in favor of allowing the the buy sell transfer of deer uh, now. And then some other um, concerning comments actually made by the commission were along the lines of we are the commission, we can do what we want. And that's concerning because the commission is charged with doing what's best for the public trust, right? For the, for, for the deer and the wildlife that belong to everyone in the state of Mississippi, the commission is charged with benefiting the wildlife on the behalf of all Mississippians. And so that statement is, is in blatant disregard uh, to that charge. And so the request was made to the attorney general. That opinion came back in October. And the attorney general said that the commission could indeed regulate the buy and sale of deer in Mississippi. So that's sort of where we're at now. We have an opinion that says the commission could promulgate a rule that allows for the buy and sell of deer in Mississippi, a, you know, a wildlife species and, and transport. transport, a species that's considered yeah. wildlife, right? Something that belongs to everyone in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so now we're sort of at a... Uh, a waiting game. The, the National Deer Association has been heavily involved uh, in this in a number of ways, advocating you know to the commission to not make such a rule. Uh, we've been talking with folks in the legislature. We've been engaging our grassroots membership. Uh, but basically what the next step would look like is that the commission would have to propose a rule and, and they would propose a rule in theory that would allow for buy, sell, transport transport of deer in Mississippi, there'd be a public comment period on that rule. And then the commission would decide whether or not they were going to approve it. And if they approved it, then you would get the ability of, of some of the high fence operations or the, the breeding facilities in Mississippi to be able to move deer back and forth from facilities, which they cannot do right now. 
in which Mississippi law, we think, pretty clearly states that they can't do. So, so isn't that the key, though? Because isn't this a statute in place that says no? Yeah, well, and so, you know, <laughs> the way that it's written and whether this was uh, a legislative oversight or uh, maybe legislative uh, forward thinking, but there are a couple words in there that the argument really ties on, and I don't have the statute pulled up in front of me, but um, there was some question on whether or not the commission has the authority to make that change, whether that decision-making lies with the mm. commission. And the previous attorney general, whose you know job is to, said no. to uh, you know, interpret the laws of the state, said, no, this doesn't mean that the commission uh, could do this. But the new attorney general or the current attorney general says, yes, it does. And so, you know, should it happen, I suspect it's wide open for legal challenge. Um, but there sure. are already plays. So the, the Mississippi legislature's in session right now. There's already a bill out Correct. Uh, or a couple bills out that sort of tackle this ongoing issue with the commission. And there are some bills about the structure of the commission and, and specifying that. Yeah, sort of potentially moving them to more of a Department of Marine Resources advisory, advisory right. to the executive director. Right. There's right. Uh, some pushes to include language in the commission's charge that decisions need to be based on sound science, you know, which opens up to an additional level of scrutiny from the public. And then there's also uh, some language um, that reiterates that, uh, you know, wildlife in the state belong to the people, not to be bought sold, transported, you know, so there are a couple of legislative attempts to tighten this up and sort of get ahead of it. And typically we don't like, are there any other legislations on the other side? We haven't seen any yet. Um, okay. And just sort of the rumor is, is that the other side is going to be just sort of um, in defense mode right now and then see how everything plays out and then decide what the path forward may be. Um, and we typically don't like the who is the other side, Torin, in this in, in this debate? Who is the other so, side? The five farms? Typically, yes. So there are a couple, um, and this is all sort of hearsay. You know, I'm not in Mississippi, so I don't know the exact landscape. But there are a couple large political influencers in the state that either have or have deep connections to um, fenced deer properties or breeding facilities. And so the push is coming from sort of that direction. And I suspect that the largest incentive comes or the largest, largest incentive for this to change comes from the, the controlled breeding facilities. Yeah. Mm. And so we normally don't like the legislature to get involved in deer management, right? That that's something that should belong to 100%. The, the science scientists who are the biologists who are trained in this, who work on this every day, they're in the field, they're seeing this. Uh, but in this case, sort of the commission is is acting as a barrier to the the agency to carry out its you know scientific mission to manage wildlife with the best available science. And so, the legislature may provide you know some clarity or or some uh, structure to how these wildlife management decisions can be made. And so, it's all sort of playing out real time right now. Uh, there's actually a commission meeting on. Uh, today's a Monday. There's a commission meeting in just a couple days. Uh, it doesn't sound like 
the commission is going to put forth any sort of rule on this yet and that they may wait and see what happens in the legislature first. Um, but it's still very, very much evolving. Uh, and the outcome is, is, I would say, very uncertain at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the commission, as I understand it, has made some on-the-spot decisions without it being on the agenda in yes, the past. So. Exactly. Uh, it, it would not be out of the ordinary for, for it to be added to the agenda or for a motion to, to be made without being mm-hmm. uh, discussed or, or put on the agenda prior. Torrent, I think for those that may not be familiar with CWD, and I'm certainly not an expert, um, can you, because I guess a sort of a practical component of this, and it may just be not possible at this stage, is there no test for CWD of a live animal? There are some, but the uh, the strength and power of those tests are not great. Um, so there's not the results are not always accurate. And while it's great to do that, we're still seeing like facilities that are approved um, without getting too far in the weeds. There's a a federal program called the herd certification program. It's a series of federal guidelines that are voluntary, but if a facility follows their, those guidelines, they become certified. And that certification basically states that they have taken, you know, strong as measures as possible to ensure that their deer are CWD free, right? And that includes doing those type those types of tests. But what we're seeing is even herds that are certified live type tests. What's that? Live type yes. tests. Live type yep. tests. Yep. Even herds that are certified are still then uh, giving us positive detections, either that same herd later or at facilities that are connected to the certified herds. And so it's not working. There's holes there, right? And so the the test exists. The strength isn't there yet. That's part of the research too. And we're supportive of that. You know, if we can come up with a great live test Mm -hmm. and we can make certain, you know, that's fantastic, but we're not there yet. The best way to test is post-mortem after the deer is dead and you pull the lymph nodes. Hmm. Yeah, it would be... If you think of a game, you know, a game breaker for CWD, obviously a treatment <laughs> of some sort, yeah. right? Um, of the carcass, of soil, of something that would get rid of the prion. But very close to that would be a live, some sort of live test. And it'd have to be super simple, right? It'd have to be something along the lines of a dart that takes a piece of muscle tissue that falls out the deer once you shoot it to be able to detect whether or not very accurately, whether that deer is CWD or positive yeah. or not. And there, so much of the research is around test kits. How do we get uh, results back quicker? How do we make it easier for hunters to mm. either test themselves or to remove the lymph nodes or take a tissue sample and send it in so that they can get an accurate result quickly. Um, there's some cool results uh, that are promising from a test where basically uh, you take a hole punch and hole punch a piece of the deer's ear, and then that ear go that yep. little piece of flesh from the ear goes into a solution and can be tested that way. And the results of those tests have been pretty accurate. So there's a lot of work being done there um, on improving tests, improving the power of tests, improving the turnaround time of tests, and that sort of thing. Mm. We're not there yet. Uh, you know, I don't know 
if we'll ever get to a point where a hunter can, you know, carry a kid in their backpack and they just throw a piece of flesh in and, you know, it turns color and it tells them. Oh man. Could you imagine, could you imagine the TikTok videos of a bunch of Mississippi rednecks <laughs> trying to jump on the back of white-tailed deer <laughs> to try and punch a hole in their, in their right. ear to try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tag. Well, and that's, yeah, that's why so much of the focus has been on post-mortem. Right. But, um, and, and we're more attuned with the, the hunters, but certainly the folks, the deer farmers across the country and those who have breeding facilities and other uh, high fence operations or high fence properties, right, have a vested interest in, in having a really practical, powerful live test as well. And so they're pushing for that too. So um, there's good work being done from all sides. There are absolutely differences between groups like ours and, and controlled breeders, and we obviously don't support that. Uh, but they have a business interest in managing CWD as well. And so there are some things where mm -hmm. we work together, um, some legislation that, that brings more money for research and management for the disease. Uh, we've worked together with sort of the captive industry on that to pass that legislation. So there is some common ground there um, where we all just agree, like this disease is bad for, for anyone who cares about deer in any way, shape or form. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Well, Torin, I know this is probably not the last time that we talk. Um, and uh, I appreciate you coming on and sort of laying the foundations of what is generally happening CWD-wise, and then specifically what's happening in the Mississippi deer herd, um, which is near and dear to my heart specifically. Um, as things break with the commission or as things move through the legislative process, um, maybe we can do this again or just jump on like an IG live and do like an, a, a super, you know, yeah. in the now sort of update. And that you know? may be the best way as things move pretty quickly. Um, should they move quickly, we'll likely need support from folks in Mississippi pretty quickly to either send letters or call lawmakers or attend commission meetings, things like that. So, uh, yeah, as things progress, they're going to progress quickly and we'll need to engage grassroots pretty rapidly. So appreciate the outreach here. It's helpful for our mission. Um, obviously a resource we care about and we want to help the folks in Mississippi any way we can. Absolutely. Thank you, my man. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.